Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 56. In this one, I get to sit down with Jefferson Bethke, which was really, really fun. We talked about hustle culture, social media, being intentional, modern, crazy, busy culture, silence and contemplation, creating boundaries, uh, and making room for like a Sabbath lifestyle. So it was really great. He's got a new book coming out that you'll hear us talk plenty about. That book comes out in about a week. So you'll want to hit the show notes for the pre-order link to that. And I have some really exciting news. I am going to South Africa next month for two weeks to help out at a really amazing orphanage and daycare center outside Johannesburg, super grassroots. I am looking for a handful of people to help chip in and cover my costs. I found some amazing airfares, but uh, as you guys know, I'm, I'm relying on support from you guys just to live and pay my bill so almost all of my airfare has already been covered but i need a handful more supporters and to chip in to cover uh, some supporting this orphanage so anyway you'll hear me talk about more of that in the show here we go i'm excited today to have jefferson bethke on the line with me uh some of you will probably remember uh how long is it? Seven years ago? Uh, this video that comes out with a spoken word performance, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And uh, that video has been seen over 30 million times, and, and Jeff is the guy behind it. He's got all kinds of stuff going on that we'll hear about, but I just want to say welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm excited. So you've got uh, a whole bunch of stuff going on. Like you and, and your wife are, are still doing all kinds of stuff on YouTube. There's like marriage videos, training stuff, encouraging family stuff. Like uh, you've got like, I don't know, like you've got your hands in deep and all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do do a lot. We do do a lot. I mean, I see the internet definitely as my vocation and um, and uh, that plays out in a lot of different ways through podcasts, books, different ventures with like family teams is one of those things. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I mean, the singular kind of theme though is that we really just want to make people think about Jesus in a new and fresh and unique way. Um, well, I mean, it's not you and new and unique and fresh at all by any means, but I think the um, kind of, you know, Jesus has to be reimagined in some sense for every generation. Um, but again, not reimagined, just kind of rethought for in that context. And so, yeah, that's what we like to do. And it's really, really fun. And we kind of use all the uh, avenues at our disposal. So it's, it's a mix for a fun time. That's wonderful. It's totally true, right? Like it's like recapturing it. And yet this is this old ancient news. We're talking yes. to, to Brad Jersak and he's like, all the progressives think I'm like their hero and I'm super progressive, but bro, I'm, a, I'm orthodox. I'm as old as it comes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, you know, there, 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 it is funny too, of that orthodoxy and orthopraxy and some of these other things of, um, that's usually where a lot of the space is being played out is, is um, not necessarily, yeah, just how it plays out in regards to what we believe, but what that actually, and what the scriptures have said for a long time, but what that actually means for our moment. And that sometimes is always a fun conversation. Yeah, definitely. So you're, I've been, I'm halfway through your, your new book, which comes out pretty soon, To Hell with the Hustle, Reclaiming Your Life in an Overworked, Overspent, and Overconnected World. And... Uh, I drive for Uber sometimes and I buy and sell things on Fiverr. And so like, I totally get that kind of busy maker hustle side hustle life. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the book is and I'll give you some of my thoughts. Yeah. So the, this book was kind of born out of, I mean, hopefully every book someone writes is born out of their own personal experience, but this one was, yeah, the last couple of years was definitely a more um, focused journey. I would say of, you know, me kind of, it's kind of like the Steve Jobs, you know, story of how he didn't let, you know, his kids have iPads type of thing. Like the drug dealer doesn't let the kids have drugs. 
And at some, at some sense, um, I'm no different than any of my peers or millennials or friends and anyone in my generation, but I think I was able to get to the surface of the sun a little faster and cl- because of the nature of my work being actually the internet, right? And being social media and being kind of these things that are the epicenter of hustle and of speed and of pace. And so I think um, because of that, I think that I th- it was already a couple of years ago where I was already starting to feel really disillusioned and really disenchanted with what kind of this entire world we're in and what it's doing to our formation with Jesus and our walk with Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I started to kind of rethink and, um, um, you know, reimagine some things. But like I said, it was really just a rediscovery of things that have been there for a long time. And I realized how a lot of us need kind of um, uh, one of the best things we can do currently right now, I think, is lean into really robust, um, deep spiritual practices or things that we actually think are curses that Jesus actually says are blessings, right? Like we think silence is a curse, but in scripture, it's a blessing. We think obscurity is a curse, right? Not being famous, not being known, but Jesus clearly tries to, um, you know, there's tons of people in the scripture where it actually is the season of blessing when they're the season in obscurity. Um, and so, yeah, so kind of leaning into some of these more richer, deeper, more meaningful, either practices or formations, as I like to call them in the book, has brought a really good antithesis and resistance, in my opinion, to kind of this culture of being overworked, overspent, overhustled. And so, yeah, that's what the book's about. It's kind of a, you know, it's a journey like book where I talk about that, but then I unpack kind of these juxtapositions, every single chapter of silence versus noise, obscurity versus fame, you know, Sabbath versus work um, and some of these other things. So yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I, I really spoke to me. I, it wasn't, how do I say this? It, it, in many ways it mirrors my journey. I think is probably the best way to put it, you know, it's like I've I've played those games. I've okay. Let's just be really honest. Right now, I am an aspiring author, and I'm working with publishers. And so it's like, oh, build your platform, build your platform. And I used to be a publisher, so I get that. I understand what sells products and how you move books. Part of the reason I started this podcast in the first place was like, well, I need to create an outlet. And within like you know three months, I'm like, this sucks. I, this is too busy. This is too much work. I don't even like really like audio editing and, and like, this is just like stressful. And so I'm like going back to the drawing board. I'm like, I've added all these things to my life because other people seem like keeping up with the Joneses for our generation. It's like, well, don't sleep, just run on coffee. And so I had to kind of, I mean, are you, are you a Simon Sinek fan? Yeah, he's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, there's a handful of these like Gen X sages who are like carving out a space like Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, you know, um, yes. ex- almost like ex- it's like here, here's where the generations before uh, set us on a really damaging path. And you guys are really the ones who are going to have to be able to save the world. <laughs> and these like Gen X's Sanders in the middle are just like, please do the right thing. So, you know, Cynic's whole thing was like, start with why and, and find a really deep reason. So I'm like, okay, I can podcast because I like talking to people and I like meeting to pe- meeting people. That's so much more meaningful than building a platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, there's so many different, it's, it's complex, right? It's not like building a platform or social media is inherently evil, but it does come with, I think, inherent consequences um, or inherent kind of um, collateral damage. And so I think, yeah, always being mindful of that is really helpful to me. Um, and making sure that <clears throat> the work itself is staying 
um, holy and staying honorable and staying, um, you know, because here's the thing, like we have the same principles as Christians to love God, love neighbor, be generous in spirit, the fruits of the spirit, all these different things, um, no matter where we are. And so that should, it, we have to always ask ourselves, is that playing out where we are at? And if we're, and if we're losing all these things that make us human in spaces that we're going like social media or online, then that means then, yeah, for us, that means we probably either need to step away or do some, some serious reforming. But I also think there are also gifts and avenues that we can totally use to, um, you know, have these conversations. And like you said, Brene, Simon Sinek, like a lot of us know about these people because of the the places that we're talking about, yeah, exactly. right? Like there's an inherent consequence or an inherent built-in nature of like, well, yeah, we can't fully shut it down or else we wouldn't even know about these people who are telling us about this. So it's kind of like a weird inception moment, right? <laughs> um, but uh, so I don't think we need to go too hard on it, but I do agree it is, but we also have to be very... Um, I talk about this in the book, like you have to have an actual like um, strategy against connectivity and phones or else you will lose because because someone else has a strategy like they're not inherently neutral. Yeah. Right. There's a small group of people in a very small location in the world called Silicon Valley that are making decisions that affect about two billion of us. And those decisions are for them to make more money. It's just simple as that. They are literally companies to make a profit. And so they are going to have an agenda and they're going to have reasons and they're going to have purpose to do that. And I don't knock them for that. I do think maybe sometimes businesses could be a little bit more ethical and stuff like that. But then that's a whole conversation of like, can businesses even be ethical or is it just the people behind the businesses? It's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but what we do have to have, what we do have to understand is that like, unless we're having a competing manifesto, then we just already start the starting line at a loss. Yes. And so I think that's really the biggest thing is like when you do that, then it does help mitigate. It does help give you a, kind of a more anchored presence. And that's really the big difference. Yeah. And you kept coming back to that theme throughout the book. It's like each chapter he, uh, you know, Jeff kind of picks picks a particular aspect of our modern life that we take totally for granted that we don't really even question. And then he draws out some of the history on how we got here. And it could be easy for people to assume that, you know, you're anti-technology, you're anti-progress, but then you quickly make that point. Look, like the point is simply that we, we lose things with each change. Yes. And then, then you have to ask, do we want to lose that? That's really all I'm asking. I'm not saying I'm not because because what we do is we inherently, I think I said this earlier to someone. All I'm trying to ask is instead of our default being yes to everything new, I think our default should be no. But we can be convinced otherwise, meaning like like uh, or maybe not even default. No, here's another way to put it. I think a lot of us have to be convinced to not accept new things. No, what am I trying to say? Like a lot of us, we need we, we, we need to be convinced to say no to things when instead we're convinced to say yes. Right. And so like a lot of us, it doesn't take any convincing for us to get the new technology. But I think we should be convinced to do that. Anyway, we should be argued into it. And, and then what happens is you say, oh, yeah, then I can think of good reasons Then I can be argued. Here's the here's the pros. Here's the cons. And that's mainly what you 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 then come to that you miss in these conversations when your default is yes, just everything new and shiny is you're not asking what you just said. You're not asking what are we losing? And then you have to say, OK, we're losing that. Is this worth it? And some and obviously there's millions of things that we've invented that are worth it. That, that exchange is worth it. Um, but we're not even having that conversation. Exactly. You talked early on about the light bulb. You know, we, we've we've got this amazing new power to stay awake at night without burning candles and blah, blah, blah. It totally, totally is a seismic shift in the way the West gets to live. But did we ever ask, you know, like what happens to our sleep, like circadian rhythms? I mean, it's, it's been a hundred more years. We're really only just starting to properly understand the health ramifications of that today. Yeah. And there's serious ones like that one. I'm, I'm, there's like serious health ramifications based on how we sleep. 
um, and how poorly we get sleep the last 100, 150-ish years. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, that stuff like that I think is really fascinating. And I love nerding out and thinking about all that stuff, but it's true. And then not only that too, but people that invent things have a mission. And I talk about that with Edison. Like Edison actually hated sleep. He saw it as trying to be a sleep-beating device. Um, and that's like stuff because when you're 100 years into it, you just accept it as the default. Not like, oh, man, this guy had a very particular agenda in doing this. And he was like a workaholic, like crazy, you know, where I think he said he worked like 20 hour days for like 15 years. That's insane. And he, he was like, fit, yeah. And he joked and said when he was 50, he was basically like 92 because the amount of work hours he had actually done would have been as if he was in his 90s by then. Or he'd worked the same amount as if someone who had gotten to his 90s. So, um, yeah, like that stuff has to be taken into account when you're thinking about all that. I really appreciated the section on time management. You told the story. If I say time management, everyone's already tuned out of this podcast because that sounds super lame and boring. But <laughs> uh, you know, you said if if you had advised us to spend every penny that you earned, anybody, any one of us would know that that was really bad budgeting advice. That you've got to have financial buffer room. And I was like, yeah, of course. You didn't even have to ram the point home. I was already going, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I do with my time. Between totally. my wife and I and our, you know, it's like our church volunteerism. You know, we're children's yep. pastors and the the and parenting and being there for our friends and community life and neighborhood and school and uh, per- parent group. And like barely even scratching the surface of what our life is full of. And it is full. There's no room. Totally. Yes. And I think you're right. And like, that's what I talk about is we like time's an asset. That's clear. I don't think anyone would argue that. And if it's an asset, so is money. And so if there's money, there's going to be parallels and metaphors. And one of those is, yeah, like it would be, you know, everyone would think it's ridiculously unwise and you can't build wealth, right? You can't build wealth without having some significant financial margin. If you're always spending every last dollar you have, you'll just basically be at the same place, never be growing, never be farther ahead, whatever. So to me, it's actually backwards advice than what we think with hustle culture of like, we think if we use all our time, we'll get farther ahead. But that's not true with the metaphor. The metaphor is actually, if you have margin, then you'll be better ahead, right? Just like with money margin, because then you can invest, right? With that margin, you can use it. You can use it on relationships. You can use it on connections. You can use it on people around you. You can use it um, for the people closest to you. And then two, what's even crazy is that the metaphor is not only, I think, apt, but then it's, it's actually like, Time's actually even worse than money because money at the end of the day, if you're strapped, you can try to go get more, right? <laughs> time, like you're, you, it is a, it is a limited asset that everyone has the exact same amount every single day and you cannot get more. And so, yeah, like, it's funny that we think like when, when you, when you, when you save your money and when you have margin for your money, people call that smart and shrewd. When you do that with your time, they call you lazy, right? Yeah. Um, and selfish. I'm just like, no, you, yes, or selfish, Right. And we see that that Jesus just was not like that. Now, did Jesus, you know, kind of what I say, did Jesus maximize his time? I think he did. But he still had margin of time. Those those aren't kind of mutually exclusive, right? To, mm-hmm. to, to retreat and pray, to walk away, to go do something else, and to be interrupted. If you don't have margin for time, then any interruption to you, you despise that person and are immediately bitter, right? Yeah. Jesus never did that because he was open to the spirit of interruption, Um And so I think, yeah, that's a huge thing we have to deal with of like, I think so many of us, it hasn't gotten any, it's almost worse in Christian culture, not even better. Where like you said, like we, we, because now that we're in God's kingdom and doing the Lord's work, then we really have to make sure we're not like, you know, being selfish and being lazy. And it's like, well, no, I just don't, 
If it's really about presence with Jesus and intimacy with Jesus, then loving those people right around you, your marriage, you know, people in your dorm room, if you're in college, your kids, maybe those kind of concentric circles of people that are a little closer to you, that really is your first work. That's your first ministry. And if you have a little bit more margin and time, then go serve some people. But if you're maxing out by serving people, what that usually does is because you have no margin, then you start to actually kind of uh, do it to the detriment of those people closest to you because you can't balance it all and you can't do it all. And so, yeah, that's a conversation I think we need to have. It's just like, man, our schedules should not be as stuffed as they are. It's not good for basically anyone's spiritual formation. And I feel like we've kind of seen the evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think you you especially grabbed my attention as something somewhat of a mystic when, you know, you brought up Henry Nowen and you started talking about silence and what actually silence and solitude does positively to our psychological frame, to our spiritual life. You know, I've read a bunch of Nowen's work and I've gone on silent retreat. I've gone to the the Genesee Abbey actually where where he was. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I'm planning to go back soon because I feel the the pull. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is something about not doing anything that I think provokes a really powerful sense of worthlessness or a fear yes. of worthlessness. How do we, I mean, how do you deal with that? It's one thing for you to be telling us, slow down, stop, create buffer space. But like, what happens then? when we're in that space and we're terrified. Totally. And that's what I talk about. It's not, you know, silence is a really, really needed spiritual discipline, but it's not this, and that's that Henry Nowen quote. It's not this cute, <clears throat> you know, romantic getaway. It's actually like, it's terrifying. And in some ways it's actually the hardest thing to do, but there is a hump you get over, I think. And that's what he talks about that you have to plow through, you know, with the, with Jesus at your side, because that takes you. Cause if you never do, then you don't realize your whole life is actually then dictated simply just by fear or an aversion to being real with who you are. Because what it does is it just kind of gives you an awareness in a really sensitive, loud way of um, your frailties, your fears, your the lies you believe and all these different things. But I think the antithesis to that is what you're asking too, is like the is identity, right? Like who God says you are. And that can only be stamped on you in the deepest way when you have, when you're plowing, when you're bulldozing through the lies in the silence and then in the solitude. And so, and I think he meets you in that place. He speaks to you in that place. He takes you in that place. And so we have to lean into that. And it's a practice for sure. I don't think it's just like, you know, it's not like some magic potion. It's not witchcraft. It really is a discipline um, to be cultivated and to be sat in and to be understood. And I think the Lord really works in really beautiful ways. But yeah, having to lean into that is deeply, deeply important Important if we want to be kind of people with robust uh, spiritual life uh, in Jesus. How does that play out for you and for Alyssa with kids? Good question. Uh, for us, it just it depends. But I would say in this season, yeah, like I have to get up super early. And that's just the sacrifice I'm going to make, you know. Um, I used to hate people that said that, you know, I get up early and attack the day and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's dumb. I don't want to attack the day. I don't want to do any of that. I'm not – I don't move that fast. I'm good. So I'm not that person at all. And I used to always be like, oh, I'm not a morning person, so I can't get up. Well, it's like, yeah, I'm still not a morning person, but I need to get up. Right. If I want to have with my current pressures and responsibilities, if I want to have space for me to think and be at the feet of Jesus and read and process my day, then I just have to. And now I can say no to it. It's not like a legalistic thing or whatever. But in general, that discipline has to be strong for uh, me to see that. So 
yeah, I get up super early, a couple hours before the kids and the family. And sometimes even when I'm writing my books, because my brain space is usually at the best then. And um, yeah, but I remember when I, when I was in college, it was lunchtime, I think, you know, I would grab a meal and I wouldn't eat with anyone at lunch. I would always just kind of use that time in between classes to just go kind of think and eat a meal. So like, I don't think it has, there's, there's no holy time in the day, but you do have to have carved out set apart time in the day. And Jesus clearly shows that he withdrew and retreated to pray and to talk to the Lord. And having at least some type of block of that as a consistent daily discipline is really helpful. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Earlier in the year, I started doing a, a kind of a, a meditation each morning, and I actually started doing it live on Instagram because it was like, it was like accountability. <laughs> and it, the problem though was that come summer, when I was ready to sort of take a little break, and I was like, okay, guys, I'm I'm going offline. I won't be sharing anything for a month. This this daily ritual of kind of meditating on on love for myself and helping communicate God's love to me through me, I'd only ever done it publicly. I'd only ever done it on Instagram. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't feel like doing that because I feel like that's exposure and I feel like I'm being watched. And this actual spiritual thing I've done, I've only ever done in a public context. So I stopped because I'm like, hey, I'm stopping everything social. But then all of a sudden, one of my key rhythms was removed. <laughs> and, you know, within uh, five or six days, I was like, why do I feel so weird and I'm like, oh, yeah, because like one of my major, most important spiritual rhythms in my life has just stopped. And I, like you said, I, I didn't ask the question. I didn't have that conversation. I didn't consider yeah. what it is that I was shifting out. I mean, that's a weird back to front kind of example because I was been doing a genuinely powerful spiritual thing through social media. But the rhythm, the rhythms are important, right? Totally. And, I, and, and because rhythms and rituals begin to compound. And that's what I think is really helpful about them is they start to take on like a meaning and symbols in the same way, you know, the kitschiest example is like any type of smell that can just instantly take you back somewhere, right? Um, or like a hat, right? Like a hat is not just a hat. A hat might be the hat that your dad took you to a baseball game and you bought the hat when you were 10, right? Like everything, like items and things and rhythms hold meaning kind of like a bucket and the more you're – every time you do it, you're pouring more water into that bucket, um, which then becomes more and more powerful. And I think, yeah, those are actually really helpful tools, I think, in following Jesus for sure. You talk a bunch on about your like your family Shabbat, your Sabbath. Uh, mm -hmm. How did that ritual come about? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, part of it was we spent some time in Israel about five, six years ago and just saw how beautiful of a ritual it was. Um, and then being like, hey, I, I think we read the same parts of the Bible that have this. Um <laughs> Thanks. We'll get back to Jeff in just a minute. So normally this is the part of the show where I would thank my Patreon supporters and make a great big fuss about all of you folk who support me every month. And I am so thankful. In fact, today I was working on my thank you cards, sent a bunch of cards in the mail out to my new supporters. Thank you so much. Uh, but here's the deal. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm currently planning a trip to South Africa. My uh, father connected a number of years ago with this amazing woman named Maria outside Johannesburg, who, thanks to the grace of God, managed to get out of the cycle of poverty. She experienced some really miraculous things. She gets out of poverty and basically reaches right back down and starts rescuing kids. So she started an orphanage. She adopted a bunch of kids. She started a daycare center. Uh, as the HIV AIDS epidemic in South Africa became really severe, they started an education center for, for women and other folks to learn about HIV AIDS and how to prevent. And so this is like the definition of grassroots right down to the earth level of support, local 
people. There is no NGO support. There is no government aid. Uh, They rely totally on what they can raise locally and on the support of international folks. So this is like really close to the issue, really urgent, uh, intimate local care that, as I said, my father has been supporting for a bunch of years. He travels down there every year and helps them out with with finances and, and logistically with management stuff. This year they asked for more training and spiritual mentorship and things like that. So my dad said, hey, Jonathan, you should come with me. So I am super, super pumped to get to go down there for two weeks to mentor their young men, to talk to young teenage guys about uh, making wise lifestyle choices, about how to hear from God, how to implement God's guidance in their life on a simple, practical, daily basis. Uh, And then to hang out with the kids in the daycare center, I am really, really looking forward to it. I need a bit more financial support to get there. I've got a GoFundMe. I received almost all of the support I need in the first 12 hours, which completely... Uh, blew my mind and overwhelmed me, and I'm so thankful to all of you who've chipped in. Uh, Everything that goes beyond my costs will go directly to Maria and the daycare center and the orphanage there. It will all be put to amazing use. So please consider giving. The link to that is in the show notes, or you can go to jonathanpuddle.com slash South Africa, and then you can support. Thank you so much for considering, and uh, we'll get back to the show. That was part of it. And I think also just for me, it's such a helpful tool. Like I don't even see it as like a legalistic, like you have to do this or that. And I think Paul actually makes it clear that like Sabbath is a no judgment zone. Like don't let, low, not, let no one pass judgment on you for Sabbath, new moons, festivals, et cetera. So it's like, yeah, at, at, at in the, under the new covenant, if you think it's a helpful tool, uh, which I do think it is, especially in our culture, then I would ask, I would consider, tell people to consider stepping into it, but it's also a no judgment zone. But for us, yeah, it's been a tool that has just delivered so much to us of this this moment in time once a week where we cease, where we stop, where we celebrate, where we party, where we rest in how good God is. It's not this vegetable day where we hang out and watch football. It's not this day where we do all our errands. Both of those, in my opinion, are anti-Sabbath. Hmm. Like those are actually in the spirit of those. Those are anti-Sabbath, right? Um, Sabbath is a day of delight and celebration and joy. Um, and kind of vegging out is showing me that I probably am not living with good rhythms in the first place if I need to just basically be a vegetable on the couch. Um, and then two, uh, the errands and all that stuff is kind of actually like the definition of hustle, in my opinion, of just the busy body, go, 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 get the checklist done, get the to-do list done. It's like, no, what would it look like to center relationships, people, my kids, my marriage, food, delight, myself, what I love most 24 hours once a week. And that's basically what we do. And it's so life-giving and such a practice that we, yeah, we can't even live without now at this point. Um, cause it's so, um, formative and beautiful for us having, and that, back to that compound interest thing, like that we've added on to over five, you know, six years. Yeah. I love how that will play out for your, like your kids are are young and it's so cool how that's going to grow in their lives. Right. Like, I mean, how old's your eldest? Uh, Five years old. Yeah. Okay. I thought so. Like the likelihood is they're not going to remember really life without that rhythm. Yeah, exactly. And that's wonderful. Well, yeah, because we started when she was even born. So yeah, there's never been a time where the kids basically it hasn't been a part of our home. And so yeah, back that compound thing again, like Friday nights, once they're 20 years old are going to be, you know, they're going to mean something more than most people and have a weight to them because of, um, you know, uh, and hopefully they'll be yearning for that kind of that celebration and that rest and that ceasing because it's been such a rhythm we've built in over 20 years. We do Friday, every Friday night, we have dinner with two sets of friends and it'll rotate through three families houses and it's pretty it's pretty rare that we miss it sometimes you know we got to schedule something else or someone else is doing something on a friday and we really want to be involved but it's pretty consistent for us and 
I've got three kids. One of the other families has three and the other family has four. And they're all, you know, 10 and under. And we were camping. We went camping with them all this weekend, last weekend. And we were playing this silly game where I put a bunch of things into a into a bag and we all had to pull one out at random and describe our, mm-hmm. our favorite part of it and the, the part we liked the least. And so one of those things was Friday night hangouts. And it was fascinating to hear from, you know, my own closest friends what part of it has been the most meaningful for them and and for different different things were said by different people but it generally boiled down to i can expect it it's coming i look forward to it it's a rhythm it's this important semi sacred totally. event in the calendar that i know is going to happen that while so much else in my life i don't know it's going to happen i don't know if it's going to pan out the way i've hoped I know that I can get together with some really safe people who love me, but who also call me higher and who my kids love and get along with every Friday. Yes, exactly. And I think, yeah. And it's like what you said, the repeatingness of it. It's like, it's almost like you're storying yourself. That's a weird way to put it, Mm. but you're kind of like, you're kind of like constantly embedding this story into you of what is true, centering on relationships and people and friends and um, yeah. And that stuff really, really matters. One thing that you also brought up early on that fascinated me was the journey, like our our kind of massive distrust of anything that feels like tradition and, and legalism. Like that's the word. Uh, this, this made me laugh because I grew up kind of evangelical, charismatic, exposed to very little Catholicism. And anything that I thought I knew about Catholics, I thought they were like the worst people on earth. And other people... My, my listeners will have heard me share this story a few times before, but I was eventually really drawn in to the rhythm and the ritual and the mystery present in Catholic Christian expression. So much so that our children are now baptized Roman Catholic and go to Catholic school. And, you know, we're still heavily involved in in many other traditions as well. But like we have this major issue with legalism, right? Like we're terrified. Like it's like it's like a witch hunt. And and yet there, there are these important rhythms that somehow we're missing out on because of our fear of, well, that sounds like works-based religion. Mm-hmm. I was, I appreciate it. I'm glad you put that in there. Yeah. Cause I think there's a difference. Like Jesus was, it, it depends on, I think we define it. I think we define it and see it a little too caricatured like and a little too flimsy because if it just means like doing anything with effort or discipline, um, in like a rhythmic ritualistic way, then Jesus was the most legalistic person ever. Like as a, <laughs> as a rabbi, as a rabbinical Jew in the first century, like, I mean, come on, like it's not even right. Um, but what it really comes down to is the softness of spirit to our heart, to relationships are, is loving God and loving others being prioritized is certain principles and rules. Can they be bent at some level? Um, for the betterment of people, like we see in Jesus with, you know, uh, the Pharisees constantly getting on him about Sabbath and him kind of saying it was okay for David, David to bend that rule. So they didn't die from hunger, right? Like, um, there's that, like stuff like that. And so I think when you really kind of keep it more in perspective, that's the stuff that really, really kind of, um, uh, puts it in the right perspective. Yeah. Is that something that you've journeyed with, you know, for, for your part or, or how, how would you describe that? How you've ended up where you are today in terms of, Seeing the beauty in the rhythms and the rituals. Uh, what do you What do you mean? Or how say that? So let me put, so put it. Try, let me, yeah, let me phrase this another way. When When you put your your spoken word video out, that first, you know, that one that blew up for everybody, Jesus and religion. 
you know, some people took issue with some things you said about religion. Uh, and, and, and I've seen, I've read that you've gone on record in some cases saying, you know, maybe I use the word religion lightly. Religion as a word means different things in different contexts. But what I, what I read you saying, you know, here is like, for example, you've got this chapter that says freedom requires limits. Yeah. But like, I wasn't singing that. I, I, I'm with you. I'm totally with you on that. But I wasn't with you on that 10 years ago, right? Like, I mean, 10 mm. years ago, I was like, no, freedom or nothing. Like, <laughs> screw all this. Uh, get out of here, religious people. It's grace, which means nothing else. And so, like, have you journeyed in that? How has that changed for you? Like, Yeah, it's certainly been a journey. I mean, I think the more you, you walk with Jesus, the more you realize that um, – you know, that there's something inherently limiting about submission to grace and the Lord and all these other things. And and how our culture's view of freedom is really not the one you see in scripture. Like freedom, and like I use the analogy of skydiving, inherently has like if you want true freedom, there has to be limits. Completely unhindered freedom isn't freedom. That's like chaos almost, right? Because even creation is, you know, brings order and order has to have like a limiting aspect to it. And so, yeah, I think that's something that we all have to wrestle with is like, I think a lot of our ideas, a lot of Western people's idea of freedom in the West is pretty cheap and pretty just like not actual freedom when we actually kind of uh, break it down. Yeah, sure. Okay. Like, I mean, I don't live in the States and I don't mean to throw stones, but you know, there's definitely like this, okay, America, the land of the free, but a lot of the time it seems like it's the illusion of freedom. Like we're free to pay a lot for our health care. Like, well, I'm yes. free as a Canadian to pay nothing for my health care. <laughs> and I think my freedom might be better. <laughs> but uh No, it is, man. I mean, shoot, yeah, there's ours is like, yeah. And I agree because there's the freedom there within the limits, and that that makes the difference, you know? How do you guys Okay, this is this is a change of, of direction, but how do you, as someone who is, you know, is essentially a full-time social media influencer with, with all the other bits and pieces that, that, that takes place in the real world. How do you keep your heart in the right place? How do you not get caught on likes and follow count and that you can just be yourself and live? Yeah. I think part of that is just like centering the right things. I mean, I've like, there's sure there's some pressures to that, but I also feel like it's not my reality. Like I've found you can only counter lesser treasures with bigger treasures right and the the true treasure to me is like deep meaningful relationships of people in my home in our home sharing meals doing life with each other being accountable being transparent and then i'm not trying to then fill or find all those places online online then just becomes part of my vocation and it's a gift and i love the community that we've cultivated on there i love people that follow me and Alyssa. i love being in conversation with them but because we're kind of anchored in more real life then it's not trying to replace that. It's just a supplement to that. And that's where I think the big difference is with a lot of us is where we spend so much time on it that it actually subtly starts to become our actual real life. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Do you think there, I mean, some, some people would simply would say, well, you know, we, we do have real relationships online. It is a real relationship. They are real friendships. My gaming community is a real community. How would you respond to that? I think it is. I think it is a community, but I think it's a subservient, subservient community to one you need to be having in real life. Because that's the thing too. Is I think sometimes people go on the other flip side and say like, oh, it's not a real community or it's not this or it's not helpful. I think online can actually be some have some really cool interactions. You know, we're having one right now and connections and you can really form deep relationships with. But I do think there's a, there's something about the embodied body that has to uh, stay true. And I think everything else has to be subservient to that. Yeah. 
That's good. I like the way you sum that up. With all the different kind of bits and pieces of content that you guys are creating, do you have, you know, and you've written, this is what, your your fourth book, I think, or your fifth? Uh, yes, I think so. Well, it depends. Fourth traditional one, but like seventh or eighth. Yeah, If you sure. include all some of the smaller ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a, do you have kind of like a, a favorite topic of, of the present time? I mean, beyond the fact that you've got this book coming out, but, you know, is there kind of like a common thread maybe or, or a set of of deeper values that you'd be wanting to really try to deeply reflect in everything? Yeah. I mean, I honestly would say this book, like, I feel like this is just where my headspace has been out for years and I'm just so proud of it. So stoked for it. I think kind of just, yeah, reminding people to live and trying to get people to be thinking about a deep, thoughtful, embodied, rich, meaningful, slow life and how that's critical to spiritual formation with Jesus uh, over and against our culture of hustle, hurry and speed is just where I'm at right now. What I'm trying to encourage others to be about and that plays out in a cousin way with our family venture called Family Teams at familyteams.com, where we're trying to equip people to opt out of the Western family experiment, which is just a collection of individuals and say yes to God's design, which is a multi-generational family team on mission. Mm-hmm. And I think all these themes are exactly the same of like leaning, taking these and putting them into the family's context is uh, really, really fun and really um, helpful. And I think that's something that really excites us right now, too. What does it mean for a family to be on mission? Well, when you read to the first page of the Bible, it's hidden in plain sight. But like one of God's primary ways to bless the world was a multi-generational family team on mission, right? So God creates this world and then he wants kind of co-laborers and image bearers and he creates Eden. Eden is not the whole earth. A lot of people have that kind of false assumption. Eden is like a pocket or a prototype. The rest of the earth is untamed unsubdued. So he wants to create something and a partnership for those people to be able to go help him subdue it. He doesn't need them, but he wants to. So it creates a partnership of these people. But before we even get there, like that's fascinating, right? What did he create? He didn't create, if if, like, if we were faced with the same problem, meaning go subdue the rest of the earth, we would probably put together a board of directors. We'd probably start a nonprofit. We might create an app. We might get a technology. We might, (laughs) you know, do an NGO, whatever. But God doesn't, God's primary answer to that problem, because there was a problem in Genesis, is like, how are we going to subdue the rest of the earth? His primary answer was a multi-generational family team on mission, right? So it's family, right? He says, I'm not going to make an individual. I'm actually going to make male plus female, and they're going to become one. Then he says it's going to be multi-generational. It's going to take a long, long, long time. So have a bunch of kids, be fruitful and multiply. And then they're going to be on mission. That mission we just said of go reign and rule and subdue the earth and bring order out of chaos. Um... And, and when I when I say family, too, I don't mean nuclear family in the sense of just like this cute little picket fence family. But I mean, like, if you're a human, you're part of a family, mm. right? Like if you're single or engaged or married or any season of life, you're part of a family. You have a last name. And I think God not I mean, of course, there's toxic families. Of course, there's unhealthy families. But I think in general, God wants us to lean into our family a lot more than we currently do. Mm. He wants us to lean into the hard part about it, the messy part about it, to lean into the legacy of it. And um and kind of uh, say no to being just a collection of individuals, which is what Western people see family as. It really is like family is nothing really in the West. It's just like a place where the individual can kind of be cultivated and trained and then sent out into the world to be individually successful. But I think the scriptural narrative is a lot more of a team, right? Like that he created a team. He created a multifaceted, multi-personed, multi-generational team to go kind of perpetuate his blessing into the world. And so, yeah, that's kind of what we talk about over at Family Teams. That's interesting, actually. I, as you were describing that, I picturing it's almost like I think in in the West we especially it's like it's like our family is like the the pot 
that we grow in only to deplete that soil and then throw it away. Yes. And we see it as actually the thing that hinders us. Yeah. yeah. If we actually want to go do the Lord's work, we say, oh man, I really need to disconnect and get away from my family. Yeah, but as soon as you look at any, as soon as you travel or or look at any other significantly different culture, I feel like a lot of other cultures have much healthier, and of course they have the downsides, but but different perspectives on family that that the the, the white West can can learn. Totally, from. and then you see families be really multi generational and legacy building because they believe mm-hmm. that. Yeah, because we purposely want to delete our family's history when a lot of other cultures want to build upon it, and that's a, a big big difference. How do you feel like the the church is contributing positively or negatively to this hustle culture? Do you think there's a, a conversation that the church is not having at all or or the church is Yeah, I think most I mean I think most churches as institutions are absolutely contributing to this hustle culture by essentially being no different and basically just burning out like church, institutional church in general, especially the larger they get, tend to chew up and spit out pretty much any type of people that give that building or that institution any type of work or volunteer service. Uh, churches don't tend to be a place where even volunteers all the way up to pastoral staff seem to leave those jobs more flourishing, <laughs> more full of life, and more spiritually rich and formed. They tend to leave burned out almost all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because any institutional machine can kind of chew you up and spit you out. Institutions are inherently evil, that's for sure. There's um, God, the church is an institution, but the Americanized, Westernized, consumeristic kind of Sunday big show performance building church rather than like a family of God that all contributes equally. Um, yeah, that really, really kind of creates and I think contributes to the culture for sure. That was exactly that. That was perhaps the largest factor in why my wife and I left the church a number of years ago. We were utterly burned out, totally sick of the, the machinery of church life. And it was like God's like, okay, come out into the wilderness. And I'm like, whoa, leave God behind? And God's like, uh, that's not how the wilderness works. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you will find I'm out here just fine. And we kind of had all of our stuff rearranged and did that whole deconstruction and then ended up back in church and in a, in a totally different context. Yeah, and a, and fresh a family. Way. Yeah, like a tiny little fresh family church that's messy and wonderful and yep. everything that I've ever longed for in terms of family and community. Yeah. And the Jewish people do this pretty well too, right? You think of the synagogue and the neighborhood synagogue and some of these things and how family centric it is and how family oriented it is. We're not trying to create this cool, big institution. What they're doing is it's neighborhood, it's parishes at some level, it's um, family centric, meaning it's very much, it's sustainable. When you're more family centric, um, if you're a family, um, then it's sustainable because then you don't feel like every week you're just, you know, get pulled in seven directions, which is what usually happens with the church in the evangelical sphere, you know? Totally. Totally. It was like, I could have, I could have been involved in something every single night of the week between this program and that program and leading a group and being in a group and worship practice, all of the above. Mm-hmm. It just never ends. How do you think the church could improve or what would you say to pastors? Um... That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that one, honestly, not to cop out of it, but I just feel like I don't, you know, I don't know. That's a, it's, it's, it's probably too big of a scale for me to even think of one thing. And then two, my immediate thought is like, well, I don't know. I mean, I got to change. You know what I mean? Like there's, I think so many times we sometimes ask those questions as if like, if the church would just do X, then I'll kind of come back or something like that. 
Yeah. It's like, well, first of all, I'm in church, you know, like Guilty. I believe in church, and the community <laughs> of God and family of God. Right. Um, but two, it's like, yeah, I think it just should be us. Right. Like uh, all of us collectively are the church, are the family of God. So, um, yeah, I think just wrestling through in a locality, in a local space, what that looks like and how we can constantly be more and more like Jesus is always really critical. But, yeah, it looks really different a lot of other places. And then also we have to make sure it's also on us, too. Yeah. Yeah, I respect that. Well done. So, uh, folks, To Hell with the Hustle, Reclaiming Your Life in an Overworked, Overspent, and Overconnected World comes out October 15th, I do believe. Uh, Check the show notes. You can find links to order that uh, on Amazon and and everywhere else. Jeff, I'm going to send people to jeffandalyssa.com as well as homeroomonline.com where you guys can get access to all kinds of resources and and coaching that Jeff and his wife do. Anything else you want to, where you want to send people? No, that's great. No, I just really appreciate people if they, yeah, I love, I'm always on social media and conversation. So at Jefferson Beth Key, I think is all my socials. Um, And if you have any thoughts or questions, you can always just hit me up there too. And I love interacting. I'm really thankful that you wrote this book, man. I, I get so many books and I'm always sort of trying to triage and figure out what to do. And so I (laughs) felt, I felt like it was really a cruel irony that I'm literally like, and I even, it's even worse because I got, because there was, I did, I got sent a PDF, an advanced PDF on my Kindle and I'm like reading through it as fast as I can. And I'm like, this is, I am embodying the problem right now right <laughs> now deep and slow yeah 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 <laughs> I love no, to... that's awesome but i i appreciate that amanda this seriously was a blast so no i appreciate you having me can uh jeff would you would you pray for us as we seek to slow down and and reclaim our lives yeah for sure uh father we just uh thank you for uh this conversation thank you for this time um i just pray lord that anyone listening uh would just take a moment even after listening today and just pause and then remind themselves how unique and rare that is for us to just pause in this culture. Everything's trying to get our attention. Um, but we want you to have our attention, Lord. And to do that, we need to pause because you usually whisper, you don't yell, but the world yells. So we have to pause and we have to listen to hear a whisper. And so Lord, I just pray that we would be people who sit at your feet day by day transform from one degree of glory to the next, Lord, um, and understand that that relationship is where the forming happens, that when we sit at your feet every single day, we are changed more into who you have us to be and more and more into your image. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we love you. In name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you to his daughter for a little goodbye on the end of that. (laughs) That was cute. Hey, guys, how good was that, eh? Go and uh, order his new book, To Hell with the Hustle. It's in the show notes. And if you are are moved by this and you want to listen to similar thoughts from a different perspective, then there's a, a recent podcast that just came out with between Jonathan Martin, who I'm a huge fan of, and Rob Bell, who I'm also a huge fan of. Uh, on Jonathan's show, The Zeitcast, they discussed building a lifestyle that's oriented around curiosity and awe and moving away from... They didn't use the language of hustle, but it's a very, very similar kind of message talking about recentering our lives around those things that are truly life-giving. 
understanding that a lot of the mountains that we're encouraged to climb by modern society have nothing at the top. And so if yeah, if you want to keep going with this conversation and hear from a different perspective, go check the show notes. There's a, a link to the Zeitcast with Jonathan Martin where he interviews Rob Bell. So thank you all so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Jonathan Puddle in interview with Jefferson Bethke. You can find out more about me at jonathanpuddle.com, at Jonathan Puddle on all the social medias. Uh, please consider joining me on Patreon if that's your kind of thing. I would love your support. It helps me keep podcasting, keep writing. And I'm uh, oh, about 5,000 words away from finishing the draft on my next uh, devotional book, all about how to love yourself in a godly manner. And so that's really exciting. And you'll get pre-release access to that if you join me on Patreon. And of course, please consider helping me get to the South Africa to support those wonderful kids and teens and, and people ministering there. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.